Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined again by Dr. Eric Helms, who is a founder of 3DMJ, pro natural bodybuilder, and a resource that I look to for content when I am coming up with my own guidelines. So if you enjoy my content, you follow me, you should definitely be following Eric. Thanks again for being on the show. Always a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for having me back, man. So today we're going to be continuing along on our journey, going up the staircase of training priorities and talking about some really fundamental variables in program design for hypertrophy. We're going to be talking about muscle growth and for the really dedicated athlete who really wants to get the most out of their programming. So today we're going to be talking about frequency. Following up on our previous discussions, frequency is a really important variable to think about and obviously a fundamental part of your hypertrophy program. So the way I was thinking of doing this, Eric was going sort of just talking about low frequency and then high frequency sort of starting on either end of the spectrum and talking about arguments for either. And then kind of putting things together after that and synthesizing. Show. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, I was going to, so figure we may as well start off with low frequency. Um, so it's classically people talk, would talk about this as sort of training a muscle once per week or maybe even less uh, by mm -hmm. some, you know, classic bodybuilders uh, earlier who would swear by what they call bro splits or maybe body part splits where they would train one muscle group or each muscle group uh, once a week and really smash the muscle. So yeah, I guess out of the gates, Eric, what are you, what are your thoughts on just low frequency training? Yeah. So if you were to look at my, uh, my kind of hierarchy of importance for training the muscle and strength uh, training pyramid, I have it intrinsically linked on the same level to a volume and intensity, which I think will become apparently clear why as we talk about it. Um, but first I would say that if we talk about classic bodybuilders and their splits, we can't go back too far or we start to see uh, the dominance of actually upper lower splits and full body splits if you go into the 70s and earlier. Um, for example, uh, Dave Draper, would often follow like a six day split where he did everything twice. Um, very common. It would look like uh, shoulders and arms, uh, legs, back and chest, and then rinse and repeat. Um, and if you go further than that into the fifties, you'd see a ton of upper lower and, uh, and full body approaches. Uh, some of this could probably be ascribed to the tools that the bodybuilders had at their disposal at the time, which was largely free weights. Um, meaning that you're going to see a lot of over overlap and a lot of reliance on compound movements. Uh, and this is also somewhat cultural due to the fact that strength sport and physique sport were a little more tightly linked. Um, for example, Ferrigno, Colombo, Schwarzenegger, um, all of those guys, and then even more so in the decades prior to that competed in both strength sport and physique sport. Uh, and uh, the Mr. America competition uh, would actually come the day after senior weightlifting nationals for many, many years. So anywho, that is probably somewhat of the, uh, what was going on there. And it wasn't until uh, machines got developed and the marketing around machines, the benefit of isolation uh, and training a specific, specific muscle group, uh, and also uh, the, the emergence of the high intensity training. So we talk about Arthur Jones and Nautilus machines and the low frequency uh, train a muscle group to failure, put everything you got into it, isolate it, all that kind of came around at the same time. Um, and that became heavily influential in bodybuilding. Volume never fully left, um, but certainly something that stuck around and has been dominant for decades now since the 80s has been what would could, could be described as low frequency training. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that even in the, let's say the 17 years I've been lifting weights, what would be defined as low and high frequency has shifted drastically. 
if you say high frequency right now, people are often thinking of training muscle groups more than three times per week. They often think of some type of full body ask approach. Mm-hmm. If you said high frequency in 2006, it would mean anything more than training each muscle group one time per week. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of looking through my own timeline. Mm-hmm. And um, this is really just come down to what's popular. Uh, none of these concepts are new. You know, for example, um, people will often attribute like high frequency training popularity to Menno Henselman's or Jeff Nipper or myself or something like that. Um, but HST, hypertrophy specific training has been around since the early 2000s. And it's built on the idea of taking the same rough volume distribution you would have in a body part split and then just doing that split across multiple full body days where each individual day has less volume per muscle group, uh, but it's spread out and it had a scientific rationale that would, you know, uh, describe why it was superior back then too. So anywho, uh, if we look at why one might want to, or what are the, the, the features, if you will, of a, of a low frequency routine, I think it is, uh, not to denigrate anyone using it, but you could say it's quote unquote idiot proof. Um, the reason being is if it's going to be seven days before you train a muscle group again, you can really go ham. And I think that's why they're so fun and so popular. Uh, there was a uh, systematic review, I want to say done in like 2013. So I don't think it's fully up to date with maybe the practices of bodybuilders today, but like two thirds to three quarters, if I remember correctly, were using a once per week split and the rest of the bodybuilders uh, were using a twice per week split. So that's definitely the dominant way of training, especially I would say in the broader bodybuilding community. If you look mm-hmm. kind of like in a small subset of evidence-based quote unquote folks, that might be a little different, I'm sure in 2021, but needless to say, um, most people train with a low frequency per body part. And that is probably because they focus on going to failure uh, and really feeling like when they leave the gym, they've given all they can on that muscle group. I think some of that ties into the uh, cultural identity of bodybuilders, that the main thing we reward is effort. And we really kind of have this kind of masochistic element to our sport, which is a necessity for getting shredded, but it definitely bleeds into our programming where, um, you know, we have like Olympians who have to constantly remind us like, Hey, you know, you need to stimulate, not annihilate the muscle. Um, and you know, that, that was Lee Haney for those who don't know. But then if you look at, you know, other voices, you'll have uh, a video literally called blood and guts, you know, Dorian Yates training videos. Um, Another kind of modern proponent of high intensity training, of course, probably a little more reasonable than the original Arthur Jones stuff, in my opinion. But there is always this focus on effort. And it is very difficult to maintain that identity as a bodybuilder. If you were to go into the gym, do a small amount of muscle, sorry, a small amount of volume for a muscle group, and then also not do many sets to failure. Nothing is hard about that, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of the acute sense. Um, so we can get into how you might set that up for high frequency training, but for low frequency training, the benefits are that you can really go ham on a muscle group. With that said, it probably requires you to have a cap on the volume you can do in a given session before it starts becoming less efficient. Um, There probably is some limit to how many sets you can do for a muscle group that you train to failure before you've kind of given the the, the, the true full amount of stimulus you can get for that given muscle group. Um, So if you are someone who responds reasonably well to moderate or, or low volumes, or if you're earlier in your career, there's probably nothing wrong with taking a low frequency approach of one time per week. Um, and it certainly is viable. Um, and I think if you enjoy really going high intensity, I think, uh, lower frequency splits are probably a good fit for you in terms of personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the personality and sort of non-lifting aspects, psychological aspects of it, come to the core of this argument at this point, which I think is really interesting because um, it's a little bit indirect from what people initially think. Like people always assume that there's something intrinsic about it. The, I don't know, the actual frequency 
but I think a lot of it has just come about where, especially with beginners, people have trouble modulating their level of intensity or effort. And especially when you're a beginner, you, it's hard to gauge RIR. And the easiest way to know your RIR is to go to failure or zero RIR. And just having that hard endpoint can be helpful, I suppose, for a lot of people who don't have any grasp of where they are, where they're at. And often probably what happens is beginners who don't um, focus on really training that hard often end up way, way off of the RR spectrum where you see people training in the gym, just doing it, you know, looking like they're when they're talking on the phone, you know, <laughs> during a set. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, there are a lot of beginners out there who probably aren't even making any progress. And especially beginners who probably don't spend enough time in the gym anyways. So if they're only in the gym a couple times per week, maybe they're missing sessions here and there, they, they really aren't at the amount of volume where the soreness or the fatigue they're generating in one session is gonna matter. So you may as well max out and go mm -hmm. all the way. That's what um, I said. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah. think uh, to, to add to that, I think there's a, that, that's one of the benefits of training in this way. And it is the way I started training uh, too, is that I have a, I, I have very quickly learned what failure was um, when I thought I only had one more and my training partner was like, no, 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 you got two more. And we were both wrong. I have one more, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I thought I was at failure. I was actually at a nine RPE. My training partner's trying to convince me I was at, I was at eight. We did a four strep. Oh, good. That was the way I trained day in and day out for two years. Yeah. Um, and I also tried to pack a lot of volume into those sessions. So I think you do kind of learn what are the limits of what you can handle, at least at that time point in your career. Um, for a given muscle group or with certain grouping of movements in a given day. And this helps you have some type of constraints. And I think that will help you understand how do I then go to a, a higher frequency of training if I want to do that. Because um, you kind of know what your barriers are. And it's, it's an odd thing for me, Bill, that there are some people who their first exposure to training programming theory might be my content these days which kind of blows my mind. You know, when I first started creating content um, 10, 15 years ago, uh, when I first started thinking about writing blogs and stuff like that, or, uh, you know, sharing my thoughts on, on just the bodybuilding.com forums, um, it was always to people who knew me who are other bodybuilders and they were, it was a piece of all the stuff they already knew. So everyone who got exposure to the concept of RIR initially was already used to training to failure. But now there are some people who are 18, 19, 20, and their first exposure to training programming is to use RIR in some, in some way. So yeah. I've, I've often had to rethink like, well, should a novice be thinking about RIR first or, or would they really benefit from some training to failure so they can get an idea where their limits are? And I think, uh, I think there's something to be said for that because the data would suggest that, like you said, RIR is less accurate with less training experience. Yeah, no, that's actually mind boggling, you know, to when you start seeing, yeah, like I see a lot of uh, like young college kids on my YouTube channel and they're commenting, you know, like, thanks so much for your content. And it's just like, wow, like if this is, you know, it's like if I was starting out and I was 18 and I was presented with the concepts of, you know, volume, RAR, like uh, frequency and all those things. And I knew sort of how to lay things out or or like, at least I was given the option, like how much, you know, how much different would things be? And could I get steered in the wrong direction potentially? Mm. Well said. If you kind of missed certain, you know, major landmarks like progressive overload or like overall effort and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and coming back to the psych psychological aspect of frequency, I think that it was, it's interesting to see kind of how the culture of bodybuilding, I think, has also played into this where, as you said, frequency, intensity, and volume are intimately linked. And when you alter one, you'll, you will have to alter the other ones. And I think that often in bodybuilding, we have this all out mindset, 
where we're just surrounded by it in, in the media, when you go on Instagram, on YouTube and everywhere people are, you just see guys like screaming at each other while like smashing reps, you know, in this um, old vintage footage or whatever, like, you know, it's filtered in a way that it looks like really grainy and, and gritty, but um, you know, people are prized for their, you know, how far they can go past failure. And so if, if you do grow up in this kind of environment, then your relative intensity or like your, your failure, real proximity to failure is kind of set in your mind. And then you go in thinking that you want to train to failure. And then the low frequency kind of comes as a, almost as a result of that, where if you smash one muscle group and someone says, oh, you should, maybe you should be training twice a week. You, you think of the way you train. It's just like, no, if I train twice a week, I would be injured, like for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When I first got presented with quote unquote high frequency, which was back in the day, people proposing upper lower splits, um, the pushback was always, you're going to kill yourself. And it was always basically, <laughs> and the, the, like the, the examples they would give or the perspective they had was always from, all right, so I just need to, instead of doing one body part per day, do two. So it was like, okay, I don't just do my leg day. I do my leg day and then I add shoulders and arms to it. Okay. I don't just do chest. I do chest and back. And then I just repeat that twice and I'm going, hold the phone, dude. You're doubling your volume. <laughs> like that's, yeah, exactly. That's, no one's <laughs> suggesting that, you know? <laughs> so I think, um, that's an example. That's a perfect example of what you're talking about is that when you manipulate one of these variables, you can or should, um, manipulate the others. Um, that, that frequency is a tool for being able to uh, increase or decrease the, the volume per session, but not necessarily change it per week. And if you look at all the, uh, the data, the research on frequency training, of, of like a valid comparison, quote unquote, is when you have a matched volume, matched rep ranges, matched effort, but different frequency comparison between two, two programs. And I think that is a useful way to look at frequency, but it also might not be the way you use it. Um, someone may decide to change their frequency because they feel they need to increase their volume, but the way they currently have it set up is that they're doing too much volume on a lift or a body part on a given day to where the quality degrades towards the end of it. And they're just too tired to give a lot of effort uh, and they wanna bring up that muscle group. You know, so they might um, do something like a body part specialization cycle, where not only are they reducing the volume per session to increase frequency, they might even reduce the volume on other muscle groups to accommodate that increase in, in frequency and volume. So I think, yes, we want to create ecologically valid programs or lab valid uh, studies, they won't look the same. But I think both can help us understand the role of frequency is a bit different. Um, you know, another thing that I was thinking, and this actually ties into our discussion on exercise selection, Bill, is mm. that when someone thinks they're training a muscle group once per week, they're often not. Um, so the classic example of just watching a, a bodybuilder's brain melt uh, is if you ask them what day they train deadlifts on, and you're going to get this split <laughs> between people who think it goes on back day or people who think it go on, goes on leg day. Um, and this kind of speaks to the heart of the problem with classifying uh, exercises by muscle group, because it's just, it's just really not the way we move. And you do need, and again, this goes back to the history of it, you do actually need specialized equipment in many cases to try to isolate muscle groups. That's why machines uh, kind of were, were, were packaged together with, with the, uh, the marketing of isolation training and body part splits. Um, I think most bodybuilders don't understand that every time they do shoulder flexion, shoulder flexion, so what you would do in a, a press um, or like a front raise, that's the isolated action of shoulder flexion, that the, the bicep is actually involved. That's a weak shoulder flexor. I think they would also not know that shoulder extension, like the opposite of a, of, of a front raise, like with like a, a straight arm push down, which happens anytime you do a row or a pull down or any type of back movement that the long head of the triceps is also a weak shoulder extensor. Um, 
and yeah, so I, I think when you look at things like compound free weight, lower body exercises, which invariably train um, not only the back, but also the legs uh, have a whole lot of stabilization and co-activation going on. And when you think more com with, with a more complete view of functional anatomy and physiology, you start to realize that that back day is a second arm day. You start to realize that that shoulder and chest day is, is also a second arm day. Uh, you start to realize that your shoulders are getting trained pretty effectively anytime you do any upper body movement. Um, you start to realize that it's hard not to get, like if you are someone who does deadlifts on your back day, you're training legs twice a week, you know? So a lot of the times people don't have a, uh, a one times per week split. They have like a 1.5 to two times per week split uh, with a lot of indirect work. And the data on indirect work, especially in novices, would suggest that it's damn near just as effective as direct work. Hmm. Um, that doing lat pull downs will grow your biceps just as much as doing curls. So that's probably not true at a higher level. It's probably not true if you hit a plateau. It's probably not true for some people. But if you were just to take your, your average person in the gym and have them do lat pull downs or curls in a vacuum, there probably wouldn't be much of a difference after, say, 12 weeks of which one got bigger arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And as soon as you said, you posed the question of deadlifts on back day, I think there are about a hundred, few hundred bodybuilders out in the world right now who are just frozen in time because you press control, delete on their brains. <laughs> that's right. Broke the algorithm, bro. Yeah. But, and, um, <laughs> you know, not, not to get too meta, but that's why I, I, I have gotten kind of away from even thinking about days in terms of what muscle group am I training? Um, I do more so think about how do I achieve the total target volume per muscle group um, while accounting for the fatigue generated by any given session. So uh, I probably I won't have like a day of high volume to failure uh, flies and then the next day have them do heavy benching. You know, like that doesn't make sense. But I don't necessarily think about the day when they do flies and the day they do bench as quote unquote chest days. I just think about, all right, what's the target volume I'm trying to get to for a given muscle group? How do I want to distribute that? What equipment do they have and how many days per week can they train? And then somewhat organically in a bottom up way, do I get to the, uh, what that split looks like? And of course I'm kind of jumping the shark. I'm spoiling the plot. I imagine we should probably talk about what higher frequency training looks like and the data on uh, lower versus higher frequencies before we get there. But just to, to drop that little nugget, so yes, exactly. We're not stuck in control of delete mode. <laughs> so while everyone's brains are re restarting right now, we are going to move on a little bit, talk about higher frequency. And yes, so yeah, we probably should have laid this out at the beginning. But yeah, I'd like to talk about, you know, just the data of um, the different frequencies and then ultimately get to chatting about splits, which I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. Um, so yeah, I guess what are your thoughts on benefits of high frequency training. And I guess for this discussion, I guess we'd call higher frequency training on the more extreme end. So say three or more times per week. Cool. Yeah. And I think that's a great way of phrasing it. And that's generally where I start to think of like, oh, our frequency is getting high. Um, so the, uh, I would say the main benefit is that you sort of get locked into no more than moderate volume training when you do low frequencies. And the reason why I say locked in is that you don't benefit from the repeated bout effect to the same degree as, as you do with higher frequencies. Uh, so for example, um, there's a good study uh, that was done just in 2018. Um, and I'm blanking on the name of the lead author. It'll, it'll come to me eventually. Um, but what they did was they had a group of like true intermediates either train a muscle group in a body part split or three times per week with a full body split. And interestingly enough, there was no significant differences and changes in hypertrophy or strength. Uh, however, they also asked them to report their muscle soreness. So they rated it just on a scale of zero to 10 uh, for each muscle group on every day that they trained for the whole eight weeks. And what you saw was that muscle soreness pretty much dropped to like nothing in the group that was training full body three times a week. Or, or I think it was actually full body multiple times per week, more than three. Uh, but nonetheless, the group that was training each muscle group with a much more higher frequency, 
their, their uh, soreness ratings were like zero to two for the mean uh, throughout the whole, uh, and, and they de decreased after like the first or second week, they dropped from like three to five to like two to three and then like zero to two and were almost non-existent at the group level. I'm sure there were some individuals who were still sore uh, throughout the rest of the eight weeks. The other group, however, the one that was doing that low frequency training, they maintained almost the exact same level of soreness from week one to week eight, meaning mm -hmm. that the amount of uh, muscle damage protection they got from training stayed static. Um, and I remember when I did body part splits, and if you talk to most people who do body part splits, they get sore and their soreness resolves right around the time that they need to train again. And this is linked to the amount of volume that they're doing. And of course, the, the effort at which it's performed at. So if you are doing 10 sets per week, but you have to do 10 sets in a single workout, and you only ex get, get a, a frequency of exposure of once every seven days, you're not challenging your ability to recover. And you are creating a huge recovery sink. So you're getting hit on both ends such that it perpetuates itself. You don't really see an out. Um, you know, I'm training hard. I'm busting my ass in this one day per week, but I'm not growing. Well, what do I do? Someone says, have you tried higher frequency? Like, well, how would I do that? I'm sore for seven days. You know, I'm just barely ready to train next time it comes around. And I think that a lot of people, they don't have an understanding of physiology to know that that is a result of training the way you're training. It's not just an intrinsic characteristic of you. That means you, therefore you can't do high frequency. Everyone gets sore as shown by that study, or at least at the group level, uh, more people are sore when they train at the lower frequency. So a higher, excuse me, a higher frequency approach. And by the way, for those who are going, well, hold on, don't I need to get sore to grow? Remember the first finding of the study, there was no significant difference in growth between these two groups. Um, that may not be the case. That uh, probably is not the case. Um, you don't need to necessarily experience soreness. So in uh, a high frequency approach, because you are exposing yourself to a training stimulus more frequently, your body is getting better at recovering uh, more frequently. And it's also just part and parcel of the fact that if you take the same volume and split it across more sessions, each session requires a little less recovery. So this goes back to that, that cultural issue uh, that, that we were both talking about, Bill, where you know, if you apply maximum effort, the benefit or harm of that is different depending on the time scale you look at. So if we start all the way zoomed out and we take a look at a bodybuilding career, and if I said, hey, Bill, over your, let's say 20 year bodybuilding career, competitive bodybuilding career, if you applied maximal effort, it's hard to say anything except that would be great, you know, because that forces you, you start to, you automatically understand that applying maximal effort over 20 years means that there's some days where you can recover. There's some days you don't go quite as hard because the way to get the greatest, if you will, area under the curve of effort means essentially pacing yourself. Um, that's why a marathon is ran slower on a hundred meter per, per hundred meter distance of that whole 23 miles than the hundred meter sprint, which is ran, you know, with the, with the best in the world under 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. So you can't maintain a hundred meter pace for 23 miles. Um, and I think that same mentality is often not applied to bodybuilding. We think about it to where each individual session within a microcycle needs to be as hard as it possibly can, which then, like I said, self perpetuates a low frequency. Cause that means you have to do all the volume and all the effort. So therefore frequency has to come all the way down because they're intrinsically linked. And it's a hard sell emotionally and culturally to say, well, we have two options here, which might allow us to get better progress. We can dial back the proximity to failure. And already you've got people shaking their heads like, you know, why would I train like a wussy? Or we can do less total work. And as you've seen, and as we've talked about, the only people who are comfortable doing lower volume are the people who want to push it all the way to and past failure. So there is a very difficult negotiation to where that session isn't super, super hard to even allow the opportunity to try out a higher frequency. Mm -hmm. So for someone who can get around the, uh, their, 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 their cultural insensitivities, um, <laughs> to put it in a funny way, and to be able to train with a higher frequency, uh, they can explore uh, you, you know, new, new pathways. If they are not progressing or not progressing as, as quickly as they, they feel they should, 
or maybe their coach feels as they should on a low frequency split, going to a higher frequency split requires some dialing back of either intensity of effort or volume um, or both. And this can allow someone to accumulate more total work per week for a given muscle group that is at a higher quality. Um, so that trade-off can be worth it in some cases. Um, you know, some people require more volume to progress. Some muscle groups for some people seem to require more volume to progress. So uh, much in the same way as we have just some minimal emerging data uh, that suggests that non-responders or low responders or people just basically in the lower quartile of who had the most gains in the study hmm. might respond better to higher volumes. Those might be the people who need to go, okay, if I need to do 20 sets per muscle group on average over time to progress, I really don't have an option of doing once per week because those 20, I mean, can you imagine trying to do 20 sets for a single muscle group in a single session? That's something you put on YouTube as, as just to show off. That's not actually an effective training program, you know? Mm -hmm. So, okay, I guess I'm going to do that three times a week. I'll do seven sets, six sets, seven sets on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or something like that. And that, now all of a sudden you have a viable program. Um, none of those days is going to put you in the hole so much that you can't recover for the next. Um, you can have, you know, select exercises that are, uh, a little more difficult to recover from, let's say train you at long muscle lengths for that Friday session. So you have an extra two days off before you come back on Monday and you can think about an appropriate allocation of volume. So the high frequency programs, um, primarily their benefit is for allowing you to, ups, uh, to, to, to go up a tick in the, in the total amount of volume or stress you're putting through the system. Um, that's not always the case. Some people just really, really struggle for certain exercises to recover, even on a low, low volume. So for example, someone who has uh, joint issues that are related to specific exercises, like every time you do uh, squats or deadlifts, it really flares up your hips. Um, that doesn't mean you can't train legs with a high frequency. It just means if you train legs with a high frequency, you should probably only have squats and deadlifts in there once per week and other movements. So I think while the low frequency splits are kind of idiot proof, like I said, you really do have to take an individualized, thoughtful approach of volume distribution and exercise selection and use it as a tool to overcome uh, a plateau when you use a high frequency approach. And I think that's probably why they're technically, why I often consider them like an advanced technique, training any more than you know each muscle group one or two times per week. Um, because you really do have to go, all right, so which exercises are off the table for training with a high frequency? Um, all right, do I actually know what a, a two RIR is? Because on, on, on the middle day of the week, I'm gonna hold back a little bit, so I'm good for Friday. Um, am I comfortable you know, having lower volume on this day and higher volume on that day? So all, all of those types of decisions need to be kind of taken into that overall uh, program for it to really make sense. So the benefits are, um, it can allow you to progress when you're, when you're plateaued. Um, as a personal anecdote, I was locked into training everything one to two times per week for years, because that's just kind of the limits of what was even considered reasonable. You know, like we can't even experiment with that because it's crazy training three times per week. Mm -hmm. And I would say that was all the way through like 2012. And I just started to experiment with, because I was struggling to progress my upper body and my bench press in 2011, 12, and 13 with three times per week benching or pressing uh, and training my upper body multiple times per or more than two times per week. And all of a sudden I broke a plateau that I'd been in for five or six years. And then mm -hmm. I just kept like pushing the envelope a little bit like, well, three times a week is okay. What about four? You know, what about every day? What about every time I train, I bench? And mm -hmm. that's actually how I went from being like a, a 300 pound bencher to a low 300s to then eventually, you know, hitting a 363 touch and go bench at, 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 at the peak of, of also my body weight as well. But um, I broke plateaus with my upper body and I, I actually became more symmetrical in bringing up my upper body to match my legs, which seemingly grew with low frequency, low volume, and just, you know, train hard and do the compound basics and my legs would develop. So that's obviously not everyone. Some people will have the exact opposite problem. Um, some people have different muscle groups that need different attention, different limb lengths, et cetera. But 
there are enough people out there that that can apply to in some way that I think that's why it's worth considering higher frequency programs. Mm -hmm. I think um, the biggest point here is that uh, you had a 363 bench and I think we should have led with that uh, at the beginning of this podcast because, you know, everyone would have just left and (laughs) immediately started training five times a week for everything and all would be well. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. I think uh, if, if you're over 315, like you are a credible resource for, for bodybuilding. It's, uh, I, I should probably just like when you open my thesis, if you want to read my, my PhD, just just put a like just a link to my video of when I benched that on that Instagram post back in 2018. But um, but in all seriousness, yeah, I think uh, ultimately that's what it comes down to is um, how do you like like what are the what if if you start with a typical bodybuilding approach and you train one to two times per week, which is totally fine, by the way. And we'll get into the data in a second if you're cool with that. Um, What do you do when you're stuck? And I think that's why it's useful to understand the more complex programming strategies because not everyone will just progress forever on a low frequency approach. Um, A lot of the people who are promoting like the low frequency approaches, like very successful IFBB pros, they are the ones who are going to succeed on that and not to denigrate their, their achievements, but probably a lot of different approaches would get them to a very high level. So um, that's great. And it's fantastic. And I think if you're someone who has never seen the need to try to manipulate your training a little more uh, specifically, awesome, you know, go thank your parents. But uh, there are a lot of other people who will plateau on certain muscle groups or just not be able to get over the hump. And I remember, man, I was trying everything to get my bench to go up. Uh, I tried bands, I tried chains, I tried maximum effort days, I tried dynamic effort days. Um, I tried a Shiko-esque approach. I tried, which which still was only a volume of three times per week um, and at, mm-hmm. at the time. And that was actually when I moved the needle just a little bit that kind of opened the gate. It was my, my three times per week was the gateway drug to training bench four to six times a week. So um, nonetheless, I think people just need to be aware that if something is completely off the table, something as important as frequency, which is, I think is a very fundamental aspect of programming, uh, just because of the, some of these cultural reasons where it's not even considered, for some people that can be the barrier, uh, unfortunately, uh, because it becomes the, uh, the valve for, for intensity and, and volume, which are actually what we really care about. Um, if you could somehow disentangle frequency from intensity and volume, and I was going to remake the pyramid, I would put frequency much higher up. Um, but you can't. And by, by higher up, I mean less important. Um, should, should I do a little bit of monologue on, on the data on frequency, Bill? Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, just one point, I just thought it was really interesting how um, I think that people kind of think about their programming in kind of a two-dimensional sense when they're not when they haven't opened their minds to modulating frequency where they go into their programming, they're like, okay, I am like only going to bench once a week, or I'm only going to bench twice a week. So what, what options do I have? Well, I've got a five by five, or I can split that up and, you know, do like a Texas method where I'll have like one heavy set of heavy set of five and then three sets of five on the other day, or maybe I can change, you know, rep schemes. Maybe we'll do three by eight and then three by five and then three by three. And you, and then they're, they're not progressing on any of these. And it's like, well, if you suddenly give yourself the option of changing frequency, it just unlocks an entire another dimension of program possibilities. And I think that's what a lot of novice lifters kind of get um, chasing their tails. in when it's just like, what's the optimal, you know, five set once a week program to get my lifts from zero to 500. Yeah, it is both a feature and a bug that once you start to withdraw constraints on the way you program, that it explodes possibilities, right? And this is math, right? Like if you were, if you're only training twice per week and you know that you can really only handle eight sets per muscle group on each session, okay, that means you're doing anywhere from two to 16 sets. That's a low, like a a low amount of of, of options to play with, right? Like you said, you gave probably the most popular examples, but if there's no constraints on how, which days and how often uh, you you train a muscle group and then how much volume you do, to some degree it's tied to to frequency. Now, all of a sudden, 
you know, oh shit, I actually could figure out a way where I'd feel like not too beat up doing twice as many sets per week. But is that too much? It very well probably would be. But mm. um, what if somewhere between the two is what's is the hot spot? And then, okay, if I do that and I'm now actually overloading sufficiently, now I need to think about deloads. Shit, you know, like all of a sudden, like the, the, the result of these options has, has, has added complexity to what I need to think about. And a lot of people just don't want to think about that. So I would actually highly encourage people to follow a simple program that doesn't require a whole lot of thought and just put a whole lot of effort into it and progress as long as you can. At the point when that no longer works, and hopefully that never happens. And you just sail all the way to the Olympia on, on, on a one times per week program <laughs> or, or, the, or the natural Olympia or WBF Worlds or what have you. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, but I, I think unfortunately, the, the genetic elite that we often look to for how to train, their solutions are many, while our solutions are individual and specific and few. Uh, for And I say our as, as a representative of someone who's not the genetic elite. Um, so yeah. So yeah. With, so in terms of data, yeah. then. Mm, yeah, in terms of data, I think uh, it, it's actually something that's kind of gone back and forth on itself for a while. Yeah. Um, when we first started getting some good information on frequency it was in the mid two thousands. Not that there wasn't stuff before that, um, and we kind of have just a hit and a miss and a hit and a miss. And I would say a few years ago, even I was relatively convinced that higher frequencies were inherently better. Um, beyond one times per week, and it became more important as you got more advanced, uh, because you would need to find a way to increase that stimulus. Um, now, I would say, like I said, I would put frequency higher on the list uh, in terms of higher up the, the hierarchy, so further away from the foundation, so not as important, um, because it is really just a proxy for volume. So if you look at the latest meta-analyses on frequency for both strength and hypertrophy, um, they would suggest that when you match volume, while the effect sizes are generally leaning towards higher frequency, they're actually quite small and sometimes they're not significant. Um, it does depend on how you analyze the data, which studies you include, uh, but there's basically a neutral to very slightly favorable uh, overall trend of the data uh, when you look at uh, increased frequencies. And it does seem to kind of not make much of a difference once you go beyond two times per week per muscle group or per movement. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of my overall interpretation of the data. And I don't think that will change much. I think if it turns out that I'm wrong, it might just go to straight neutral. And if it turns out that I'm being too cautious in my interpretation, it might go to, hey, once you're training a muscle group or a movement two times per week, there is a small effect size benefit but it's certainly something that would have like less, less of an effect than taking creatine, for example, you know? <laughs> so, so if you consider it from that perspective and you go, oh, well, shit, you know, supplements are the least important thing in terms of uh, your, your, your kind of evidence hierarchy. It, it makes you wonder how, um, how we got to the place where we see a bro split as like inherently unscientific, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, think, I think overall, it is probably fine to train each muscle group once per week, but it does just limit your volume. And that is, so th that is a limitation of the research is one, the vast majority of it is on untrained or what I would say is very lightly recreationally trained individuals. We don't have a lot of data on, on relatively highly trained individuals making progress. Um, and I would say the, uh, the second limitation is that we're looking at matched volume programs which gives us the, um, the impact of uh, increased frequency in a, in a vacuum. So that, for example, someone might be training 10, muscle, 10 sets per muscle group one time per week versus three sets, four sets, and three sets three times per week. But I think if you were to poll the individuals of, do you feel like you could add volume to these days? The person who is doing 10 sets one time per week would say no, and they're staying sore for the whole week while the person doing three, four, and three could go, yeah, no, I could, I could push it up to four or five sets per day. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the, uh, the caveats is that multiple meta-analyses now have found that when you don't match volume, uh, higher frequency programs are better because they have higher volume. So increased frequency as a method of increasing volume 
is an evidence-based strategy that I think probably doesn't quite get enough attention or understanding because we like to be very reductionist and look at just a single variable in isolation. So, um, so yeah, I think if you were to try to keep increasing volume, if you set up a study to have a group that went from say 10 to 20 sets per week and one group distributed that over one session per week and one group distributed that over three sessions, I think you would see the superiority of that higher frequency split um, owing to the current data that suggests that when you do not control for volume, higher frequencies can be superior. And that's the way we should view it from the perspective of programming is that um, when you need higher volume, uh, you can use frequency as a valve to allow it. Um, but this doesn't mean we train like power lifters. I think that's an important distinction um, because when you start to increase volume, this goes right back to what we were saying earlier, you do need to be very cautious about what exercises am I using? Because uh, some movements are just not really suited for certain people's biomechanics or injury history to be a vehicle for high intensity, um, or sorry, high frequency. I made a, um, a, a meme back in, and it must have been 2019 during my prep, where I put uh, what people think I'm talking about when I say full body five times a week. And there's a picture of someone maxing out and they're like veins bursting in their face on a squat on all five days, you know, like <laughs> Monday through Friday. And then what I actually meant, and I had a picture of maxing out on squats on like on Friday, but then the day before it was like leg extensions. Two days before that was hack squats. Two days before that was a split squat. And three days before that was uh, some other uh, quad exercise or maybe just a hamstring curl. Like they didn't actually train like it's quote unquote full body, but maybe some muscle groups don't get trained five days a week. So mm -hmm. I think um, to bring it to full, full circle, if you want to get the benefits of full body training, and if you want to leverage what the data suggests, you don't go in and just think, you know, black and white full body or higher frequency is better. You think about, all right, for me or for my client in this situation at this time, what is the amount of stimulus I need to give them? Okay, I'll start there. Start about start with the effort and the volume, get a decent approximation of where I need to be. And then I think, well, okay, if I want to do X number of sets per week at a relatively high intensity for this person, letting go of all the dogma from any camp, whether that's the, the you must train high frequency camp because yada yada, something about NPS, um, which hasn't been, you know, replicated in empirical data or yada yada, something about Mr. No, there's no Mr. Olympia that trains with a high frequency, rejecting both of these appeals to authority essentially, or appeals to, to, to data that doesn't actually play out when it comes to applied research. How would I distribute this volume? If I need to do 15 sets per week, how many times per, per week should I train that muscle group? All right. If I've chosen three times per week, okay. Um, what, what, what equipment do they have access to? How many different ways can I train this muscle group? All right, which one of those fit together? Uh, 48 hours after someone does squats, what are they gonna be ready to do? Okay, probably not squats again, or maybe they will, depending on how much volume I did in that first day. So it, I, think, I think that's the way we need to start thinking about it is uh, what's the, the best setup? What's the appropriate stress allocation per week and what frequency is best suited to achieve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it, where ultimately seeing frequency as a vehicle for volume. And mm -hmm. I think the, yeah, the primary advantage of frequency is volume, which is, it, it seems counterintuitive at first, but, um, or it's a bit more abstract, but just, looking at the amount of volume you need to do. And when it surpasses a certain threshold, it just becomes more productive overall. So as you mentioned before, the area under the curve sort of thing, I love that. Um, but just, you know, if you had 20 sets to do, then uh, if you spread, if spread that over multiple sessions versus just once, how much productive volume would you get out of it? And you know, if you broke it down and looked at each set, the quality, how many reps you were actually doing with that amount of weight, say to, to zoom in. But yeah, no, that was a great point. Um, do you find, or what are your thoughts on frequency for different muscle groups? So mm -hmm. would you 
have you seen or do you feel that there are trends where certain muscle groups do better with different frequencies? Yeah, so uh, Greg Knuckles um, has done a couple unofficial uh, public meta-analyses looking at um, frequency on, on his website. And he found an interesting pattern where bench press seemed to respond to higher frequencies, but not say leg press or squats. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of goes back to my, my personal anecdote. Mm -hmm. So of course I saw that and I was like, yep, that must be true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in all, all seriousness, um, I think, I'm not sure if it's so much muscle groups is so much it is the exercises frequently used to train them, hmm. you know? So okay. I think a lot of people will struggle to train hamstrings in a conventional manner multiple times per week uh, because they're going to have exercises that train them at one muscle length. You know, if you have an RDL, oh, yeah. if you have a good morning, uh, less so a hamstring curl, for example, then that is going to be a greater stimulus for uh, inducing soreness and then potentially making you feel that that limits your frequency than say in a, a muscle group that is often not trained at long muscle lengths uh, with, the, with the exercises we typically use. So I think it does come down to um, like, what, what is your training approach? Um, I think if someone is very focused on like uh, compound, you know, heavy training, um, they might be influenced by the, 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 the powerlifting community, but you'll notice certain anecdotes emerge from the powerlifting community. Like they don't train deadlifts with the same frequency as they do bench press. So some of that just comes down to what's going to induce more total fatigue, you know, lying on your back and, and pressing a bar off your chest or putting a bar on your back and then sitting down and standing back up or picking it off the ground. So I think the more, the exercise to train a specific muscle group is essentially a full body movement. And the longer muscle groups that it, it is trained at, the less likely you will be able to train that with a high frequency or should. And if that is closely associated with that muscle group, it is not the muscle group per se, but rather how it is trained. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, that's, that's huge. I think, I think um, it's kind of been a sort of, um, Per pervasive belief that people will say that smaller muscle groups are easier to train high, with higher frequencies. But I think that actually very well explains it where, you know, side delts, there's not that many ways you can train them. You know, you do lateral raises and that is an entirely different situation from saying like, Oh, I'm going to train my quads with a squat where there's just so much more overall damage and fatigue that's getting incorporated. Um, so yeah, no, that's a really good way of thinking about it. But I think that the average person will, will assume, will think about training certain muscle groups as just the muscle group itself, rather than the mechanics that are used to train it. 100%. If you ask people, what frequency can you train leg extensions, they will tell you something different than the frequency they can train back squats. Mm -hmm. And same thing with RDL versus say, uh, a lying hamstring curl, maybe not a seated one, because they might find they're a little more sore from that. But I think it, it does come down to uh, that, that same thing I talked about earlier is that bodybuilders often look at muscle groups or sorry, exercises as being for muscle groups um, rather than having a better understanding of all the constituent aspects of it, like the force curve, uh, at what points is the highest tension developed? And if that's also what, where the, uh, the muscle is most, length, most lengthened, yeah, that, that's, that's going to be a Dom's creator, you know? Yeah, no, that's awesome. Some big mind bombs being dropped here. And yeah, for more mind bombs, you should check out the 3DMJ vault, which I was just trying to Eric about, but there's some really great information there just about general programming for bodybuilding. And there's a new product that you guys put out on BFR, as I'm aware. Yes, actually, that, that, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a perfect segue because um, blood flow restriction training is something that has traditionally been shown to not produce as much muscle damage and there's some way that you can train with higher frequency. Um, uh, but also it, it, it doesn't lend itself towards some of these movements where you would be thrashing yourself quite to the same degree. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so this is a, I wouldn't even call it a product because it's 100% free folks. But if you go to uh, 3dmusclejourney.com, click on the link to the vault, 
Dr. Nick Licamelli, uh, that's our um, team injury reduction management specialist. He's a doctor of physical therapy. He just created a completely full course on how to incorporate blood flow restriction training into your goals, whether they are strength or hypertrophy. Uh, and he has a lot of experience using this as a practitioner, but Nick is also a professional natural bodybuilder. So it's a really good uh, course. Um, he did a fantastic job with it. So if you guys want to check that out, definitely do. Yeah, that's pretty sweet, especially at a time like this. You know, I think BFR is going to be really useful for people training at home or, mm -hmm. you know, with people with injuries and a lot of, a lot of neat applications. I just wanted to move on a bit and touch on splits just because yeah. um, I think whenever you talk about splits, it ultimately becomes an argument of frequency. Um, and really like you're just thinking when people talk about splits, I think a lot of novices will just see splits as just this prepackaged program that you just slap on and either works or it doesn't, but it's really more so of just a framework of mm -hmm. slotting in different muscle groups in a practical way and allowing people to fit in the volume that they like. Um, I think, I mean, the this, at this point, there's really not going to be necessarily right or wrong answers um, because I think there's so much individualization that goes into it and a lot of personal um, factors. But I guess just maybe asking you for a um, personal slant on splits that you've used in the past that you've really liked and why. Yeah, I think... Um... I would say I spent, have spent most of my time training in my career on, uh, although this is changing the more time I spend in the kind of advanced stage, because unfortunately that's where you end up spending most of your time, you know, scrabbling mm -hmm. for just a few more uh, millimeters of growth. <laughs> but anyway, if we were to kind of stop at the point where I, I've kind of settled into my, my patterns that probably aren't going to change a whole lot more from here on out, um, I spent most of my time in a upper lower split. Um, and I think you characterize it quite well that splits are basically like the cliff notes of, of like bigger picture periodization. Mm -hmm. Um, so most people are just not only would they be overwhelmed by, but they're not at the point where they need to really be thinking about like, all right, I'm going to have a block of a higher volume and then a block of higher intensity. I'm going to try to emphasize, uh, more, you know, like fatigue and higher rep and isolation work in this block. And then this block, I'm going to train a little more in a strength and uh, heavy axial loading type training. And I'm going to try to periodize my training, you know, as a bodybuilder. So I have these, uh, you know, more quote unquote metabolic phases and these more quote unquote tension phases. And then I'm going to, you know, have a deload, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, if you want to compete in bodybuilding and be a high level athlete, probably should think about that stuff but maybe not at the beginning of your career, or if you're just trying to get yoked, right? If you just want to get huge, basically you're looking for how much of that can I not have to worry about while still being effective. So then it comes down to, well, all right, well, where most people are comfortable looking at their quote unquote program, you know, if you ask someone like, what, what program are you running? They're going to tell you they're split. If you just walk into a gym most of the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that's not a program. I don't think that's a program. It doesn't have programming in it. They don't have a progression plan. They don't have any deloads. Um, mm -hmm. But for them, maybe that's the farthest they need to go. And to make that be the farthest they need to go, you have to essentially hit the largest area of the bell curve. So like when I put, if I was to put a program out, and I sort of have, if you look at my example programs in the muscle and strength pyramids, mm -hmm. and they are examples, they're not my like my programs. Um, the upper lower is probably the vehicle to hit the largest group of people um, because it allows a up to a moderately high volume and it can allow very low volume. Uh, if you split it over two days per week, it gets you into that uh, frequency where I think we've, we're potentially okay, even if you do go balls to the wall all the time. Um, and it allows you to uh, essentially progress from novice to intermediate and sometimes even advanced quite well. Um, and you can also have a different focus on one upper day and the other upper day versus the other lower day and the, and the other lower day. So instead of thinking, oh, I need a, like a volume block and an intensity block, you can have a upper lower strength hypertrophy kind of breakdown. 
you know, you can have a day where you train the compound lifts in a, in a moderate or lower rep range, you push a little heavier and you're trying to, you know, see the fruits of progressive overload on that day. And then you can have a more isolation machine oriented, higher rep, um, lower rest period type mm -hmm. of quote unquote metabolic day on the other day. Um, and now you've effectively achieved all the goals of periodization uh, of trying to train across the spectrum of rep ranges, you know, different pathways towards, towards theoretical muscle growth, uh, optimizing things, quote unquote, because we have no data to suggest that you need to actually follow some advanced periodization model to make progress as a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. It may become necessary when the total stress requirements are higher later in your career to break it up into weeks or blocks uh, or phases. But I think for most people, even well into their, their development, um, you can get all of that within a single week and it's simpler. Like you said, there's just more constraints and less you have to think about it. And hell, while programming can be a three-dimensional exercise, if you can keep it two-dimensional and still progress, that's just uh, you know less to worry about. Mm -hmm. So I think for most people, like my go-to position is let's start with an upper lower split where you're doing about eight to 12 sets per muscle group at a reasonably high intensity. Uh, that way you kind of still feel like you're training hard. Um, and then we see how you go and we have, you know, the spectrum of, of, let's say the six to 15 rep range expressed across those two days. Um, and we have not any more than once per week on some of the, you know, compound heavy, full body-esque lower body movements. And then you have the opportunity to try to get as much, like I said, that the largest uh, percentage of that bell curve, it might be great for 80% of people right out the gate. Um, and, you know, if you unfortunately fall within that 20%, then you get to use that as a, a starting place of what was too much or too little or not good enough for some other reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah. I'm glad you actually pointed that out and kind of used upper lower as an example, because I love, I love it for those same reasons. And I think that when sort of re recommending frequency to beginners, I often do recommend like starting off with a twice per week frequency with something like an upper lower not necessarily even that they have to um, use that frequency, but because it will accommodate them as they advance. And mm -hmm. I think often what someone starts out training with is kind of what they fall into a groove in um, if, they, if they aren't aware of those other variables and how they change as you progress as a lifter. And if you know starting getting people into the the habit of maybe training in a twice per week frequency will just accommodate that extra volume as they start adding it in when they're sort of intermediate and beyond absolutely and we often have this um kind of idyllic view of our first programs we did we made a lot of progress on them because we made a lot of progress on yeah them. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to believe that that was just the newbie gains and that or we just don't know. We may not be educated to the fact that it's natural for the rate of gains to, to slow down. And I think when you first hit that initial speed limit, when you become an intermediate um, and you just can't match the rate of gains that you had uh, when in your first six months of training or your first six months of productive training, I should say, um, it's very natural to keep trying to come back to that. Um, and if you're coming back to something that is very limited and constrained, uh, like a, like a bro split, in my opinion. Um, if the problem was that you needed to find a way to do more, it's never going to give you that return on investment. However, if you come back to an upper lower split, uh, there's a greater chance that you could get a little more throughput uh, with that structure, like you were saying. And it can accommodate exactly like you said, um, what you might need to do to progress past the, the beginner phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think um, things are wrapping up at this point just a fun question eric what's uh your favorite bodybuilder and why oh that's very difficult to answer to be honest um i'm gonna say brian whitaker brian whitaker is my favorite bodybuilder um because i think he's a great example of someone who has not compromised clearly as <laughs> someone who has uh he won in 2015 the orton cup and wmbf worlds uh, and he, you can see his progression through the ranks when he first started out, 
um, you know, battling to win the lightweight WBF World Championship and then battling for years uh, to, to finally win the overall. Um, he's always pushed himself as hard as he could, but he's also not compromised in another sense uh, that he has not compromised his life goals. And uh, he's accepted the challenge of not being a hermit uh, with bodybuilding uh, to, to be good. So this is a man with a PhD in economics. This is a man with a family. And this is a man who, if you interview him, which I've had the pleasure of doing, he will tell you uh, that he optimizes his bodybuilding within the constraints of his life. So, you know, for him, I would think he would say that his family, career, spirituality all come first and then bodybuilding. But, you know, while it sits in, you know, the number four spot, it is optimized in the number four spot, which I think a lot of bodybuilders struggle with. Uh, they don't know how to make it either not number one or kind of fall off. Uh, and they don't know how to not sacrifice things um, in, in a manner. So I think he's, he's someone who's achieved the, the, the highest pinnacle uh, of, of natural bodybuilding um, and is exemplified as well in the fact that he's arguably some of the, one of the best conditioned athletes of all time. Uh, I would say in both enhanced and natural bodybuilding. Um, and has also done a lot with his life outside of, you know, winning the biggest plastic trophies. So uh, <laughs> he's, he's definitely someone I look up to and who I respect. And I think is a great example of some of the things that were initially a part of why a uh, bodybuilding when it was more physical culture of using it to enhance your life overall. Yeah, no, I actually think that's awesome. It's that you picked him and it's interesting how the sort of culture or you know, aspiration of bodybuilding changes throughout one's career where you start off in bodybuilding and the, the, the prize is to be the hardest worker, you know, the person who dedicates themselves the most, because that's what separates the, you know, intermediates and advanced from beginners. But as you become, you know, more advanced and you come to the other end of the spectrum and you fall into this more niched, very, you know, dedicated bodybuilding community, the dedication is already there and the the goal actually becomes balance and it's like okay yeah we know you can you know train six days a week for two hours a day and you know like squeeze everything out but can you also handle a life and you know a career and all those other parts that are so important you know that people sometimes lose sight of 100 percent agree it is uh no, no one is impressed uh, you know, once you're once once it's all people who've been bodybuilding for ten years, no one's impressed that you're starving. No one's impressed that you're starving and went to failure and did thirty sets. Like, yes, we all have those stories. That's why we're we're all following each other and, and do it. And that's awesome for people getting into it. And it's a huge part of the sport and why I love it. But I don't look up to you if you do that and miss your kid's birthday. I just think you're an asshole. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, no life lessons. So with that, I think we're going to close things off for the day. Thanks so much for being on, Eric. And uh, where can people find you? Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And the best place to find me is 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. And from there, you can find links to the Muscle and Strength Pyramid books that I did with Andrea Valdez and Andy Morgan, where we talk about these priorities in super depth. Uh, where you can also find links to monthly applications in strength sport, where we go over the, uh, the ongoing uh, literature that's coming out on a monthly basis related to physique and strength sport. Uh, and you can also find, like we talked about earlier, links to the 3DMJ vault, where we have a ton of free courses and also paid courses if you want to, uh, if you want to invest. So thanks for having me on, man. Awesome. Always a pleasure, Eric. Till next time. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.